our king, lonely ring wielder, inheritor of everything. He was our man, but every man dies. Here our best boy lies. He rode hard. He stayed thirsty. He was the man. He was the man. Woo! Damn. That was your best performance yet. <laughs> you were, like, feeling it. You were feeling it. Yeah. Well, he was the man. everyone, welcome to Fire the Canon, the podcast where we read the books in the Western canon and decide if they belong or not. This week, we will be talking about Maria Devana Headley's Beowulf, A New Translation. So what's particularly interesting about this book is that she writes it in a combination of modern vernacular and ancient, archaic, or even almost totally unused words. So it feels really new and fresh, like the the warriors all refer to each other as bro. You get a lot more of the vibe of bragging in a bar about your exploits. She also throws in a little bit of, I don't know how to say this, like she throws in a little bit bit of feminism. <laughs> she sprinkles her own peculiar feminist flavor. <laughs> Which has been missing from a lot of the translations. We really loved it. It was great. So sit back and listen to our discussion of it with my high school English teacher, now Professor Brad Robinson. Brad, would you like to introduce yourself? Well, I want to start by saying bros. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, so I taught high school English in North Carolina for 11 years, and Rachel was a student in my AP literature class, a very memorable student, I should add. And so then I left um, to do a PhD in language and literacy education at the University of Georgia, and now I am a professor in the College of Education at Texas State University, where I mostly focus in educational technology, but I still am connected to the English teacher world from the university perspective. So we should be calling you Dr. Robinson instead of Mr. Robinson. Or Professor Robinson. My ego doesn't need that. I think it's Dr. Brad. Dr. Brad. <laughs> Dr. Brad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is our first guest, so. I'm gonna try and set the bar really, really high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, to our audience, um, we we discussed Kennings in our previous Beowulf episode. Brad, do you want to explain what Kennings are <laughs> as the more qualified person? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, if you've already talked about it, you probably know about it as much as I do. Yeah. Uh, so Kennings is just compound metaphor. So you you take two metaphorical terms, slap them together, and there you have it. It's uh, pretty basic. They proliferate in our language. There's all kinds of them. You know, bookworm, skyscraper. Lots of um, we use them all the time, and people don't really think about it. But they're a cool figure of speech. Theo, you should cut out that explanation from this episode and put it in the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just this disembodied voice comes in. Just pretend it's my voice. Yeah. <laughs> or Jackie was a little sick this day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we came up with the idea to play a Kenning game. What we've done is um, we agreed beforehand on a list of five words that we would try to make Kennings for. These are mostly words that you would come across in the modern world more so than in Beowulf. And we decided to write our own Kennings for each of those five words. So what you should have are now... Um, and Brad, it's your job to read our Kennings and grade them. We said for the grades... We want it to be ranging from A minus to A plus, so no one feels too bad. My parents are going to kill me if I get a B. <laughs> and we need our producers. So. I only ever gave A's anyway. So the worst one gets an A minus. <laughs> we would like them to either be graded or you can just like pick the best one for each. Oh, like uh, like rank them one, two, three. And so it's A plus, A minus, A based on... Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> you only give one A plus. Okay. 
The first word is coffee. So for coffee, our first kenning is yawn destroyer. So I like this one because it, it really um, taps into the effect of coffee um, and what it's doing. I also like it has the word destroyer, which plays off of, you know, the old English warrior style of kenning. Um, it, it sounds like something the MDH would have um, put in her translation. So I like all those things about that. Um, panic water. I like this one because of the words. It's like accent, unaccent, like panic water. It has like a nice rhythm to it. I, I'm trying to understand the effect of this one, panic water, as coffee. Does coffee create panic for some of you or does it resolve panic? <laughs> I can think of other things that panic water might be akinning for. <laughs> and then mind quickener. This is very much speaks to what coffee does for me, I think. Um, mm. I've made my decision. Okay. So I'm going to go Yawn Destroyer A+, Panic Water A, and Mind Quickener another A+. Oh, Jackie. <laughs> I thought I was going to get an A-minus, didn't yeah. you? Two A-pluses and an A. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> so so who's, who's was who's? I was Yawn Destroyer. <laughs> Who was Panic Water? I want to hear more about Panic Water. It was water. me. <laughs> <laughs> what is your relationship to coffee? <laughs> kind of heightens anxiety, and you drink it when you're panicked because you're like, I really need to get something done. I almost never drink coffee, so when, like sometimes if I do drink coffee... I realize afterwards I'm going to be up until like 3 a.m. because of this. And then I start to panic. Mm -hmm. So So for you, it is panic water. (laughs) Yeah. And I want to say, Jackie, that like even grading them as I have on Kenning's, I think just based on a phrase, panic water is definitely my favorite one. That's a great pairing of words. Okay. The next word is podcast. All right. Podcast. Um, All right. So audio delight. All right. So this is like podcast as dessert. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Self-distractor. Now, this is very much speaks to my own relationship with podcasts, kind of the way Mind Quickener did. I, you know, especially lately, I feel like I've listened to so many podcasts because they just kind of get your mind off of all the horrors. I think it just feels like you have friends that you're kind of going through it with who never listen to what you have to say. Um, <laughs> and then Help Cry. So podcasts are a cry for help. Maybe that's more from the perspective of the podcaster than the listener. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I see. So the podcaster is crying for help. I'm I'm interested in hearing more about help cry. I I have to say that I'm already super uncomfortable with grading because I don't know what sort of like interpersonal tensions you all have going on here. None, right? We don't have any (laughs) tensions. (laughs) I don't want to insert myself in long-standing feuds and have some Beowulf-style uh, fights emerge. We're all fine, right, Jackie? Yeah, the secret goal behind this is we want to be diagnosed. <laughs> Just go ahead. All right, so I like self-distractor. Um, so that one I'm going to rank as a number one. I'm just going to change the way I do this every time I do it. Okay. Audio Delight, number two. Help Cry, number three. But I want to hear um, who Help Cry. I-, I want to hear about that one. I don't think any of us did that one. <laughs> nice try, Jackie. <laughs> Jackie, that was you. <laughs> I think it's a reference to when I told my girlfriend I was starting a podcast, she said, oh, there is a cry for help. So <laughs> yeah, I almost went with rate review just to I knew I would probably lose but I would at least remind people to rate and review the podcast <laughs> okay number three is car this one's kind of lame do you want to keep keep going Go to yeah keep. I, I couldn't really do one for this one I like fume chariot for car though I just want to throw that in there okay then I shouldn't have skipped it because that was mine <laughs> that would have been the winner 
<laughs> too bad, Theo. It's too late. Okay, final one. Dinosaur. <laughs> Fossil friend. Bygone lizard. Science dragon. Okay, these are all really good, too. Um, Fossil friend. That one has that uh, Beowulf-style alliteration, so that one gets some bonus points there. Um, bygone lizard. I like that one, too. Taps into the time. And then science dragon. Science dragon is a cool, cool phrase. We'll go first place here is science dragon. Second place, fossil friend. Third place, bygone lizard. But these are all very, very close. This was a photo finish. I got last place this time, but I got the most first places. So I think I'm the winner. Oh, I wasn't really keeping track of score. Yes, you were. <laughs> I have to say when I was when I was trying to come up with these kennings, sometimes I wasn't sure if I was coming up with a kenning or like dialogue for a caveman. <laughs> when I saw a car, my first thought was like fast go. And I, 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 I like pictured like I like see a car go by and I say, fast go. And then like the scientist that brought me to life puts his hand on my shoulder and he's like, Yeah, that's right, Theo. Fast go. <laughs> Good job, little buddy. So we confirmed, I guess, that Rachel is the best student. Um, do, you, do you have any particular memories of her that stand out? Anything ridiculous that she did? Anything she would not want her listeners to know? It doesn't have to be something I don't want people to know. It can be something I wouldn't mind people knowing. <laughs> my wife was also Rachel's teacher. I can say that from my wife and me. Uh, Rachel and her group of friends were, in our opinion, by far the coolest people in the school. I don't know how cool they were in the school in general, but from our perspective, <laughs> Rachel in particular was, you probably know this, but a kidding, she was a bookworm. And what I remember about her books is, and you may know this too, but she didn't like the, um, the spines to break. Is that, that was you, right? Yeah. You can look at my bookshelf now. Look at this spine. Yeah, she just barely <laughs> opened up the book. And it was so strange because she was constantly have her nose in a book, but would never break the spine. So like literally her nose had to go kind of right into the book to be able to see <laughs> Absolutely. it. Absolutely. No, I'm saying she would be like this at any possible moment. The book would come out and then her nose would go in it. That was why they thought I was cool because my respect for books. <laughs> it's yet to be seen if your teacher's thinking you're the coolest in the school translates to the rest of your peers thinking that. But I wasn't involved in coolness. Let me put it that way. <laughs> she eschewed coolness. All right. So now let's uh, talk about the canon. We wanted to hear a little bit about what you think it means for something to be part of the Western canon. Um, like what is the canon and what is the importance of saying that something is in it or not? Give us some critiques if you have some of the canon, not of our podcast, please. Oh, I think that um, thinking about the canon and reading Beowulf is a really interesting pairing because in a lot of ways, Beowulf is very much about boundaries and exclusions, what gets included and what gets excluded. And that's like the idea of the canon, what gets included and excluded. And it's like if you had to, you know, what are the what are the grindles of literature that like maraud their way <laughs> into the into the canon and like destroy all the other literature was kind of an interesting thing to, to think about. But I certainly, even though I taught high school English for a long time, I, I had no deep affection for any concept of the, the canon with a capital C. For, for me, it was very much um, uh, a way of, of trying to create, like, it, for me, it was less about making people good readers and writers rather than passing along some sort of, like, identity that this is a cultural tradition that you're tapped into. And when you do that, then what you include and exclude becomes really important. And so I think that, you know, why do you teach Shakespeare? It's not because they think that reading Shakespeare is going to make you a new, uniquely better reader. It's because there's some idea that it's part of a cultural tradition that 
extends to us. And so we need to know it to understand who we are. And that's a story that people are making up. And so that's what the canon is. It's a story that's about exclusions and inclusions. And so I think it's a very problematic notion just in and of itself, especially if it goes untroubled. But I wouldn't say that that was something that I understood as a early career English teacher. I think that's something that kind of dawned on me. I mean, I was like just in my early 20s when I started teaching high school English. And so it was, it was over my career that I kind of realized what was going on and the stakes of it. And it started influencing my decisions about what to teach because that's the canon persists based on English teachers doing things like saying, oh, well, they just got to read Shakespeare this year or, you know, that's how it goes on. So I don't know. I'll stop there. But that was my basic off the cuff thoughts about the canon. So you found yourself venturing outside of the canon when assigning readings after that. You're saying. Yeah, because sometimes students would ask really good questions. Why are we reading this? And it's like, yeah, why are we reading this? Like, why are we reading this thing? Nobody seems to like it. I mean, take Beowulf, for example. So I remember early on, um, the Burton Raphael um, translation that would get anthologized in textbooks, like students just didn't like it. And it's like a really cool story. Like when you read it kind of, um, you know, brought to life in the way that um, it's brought in this, in this most contemporary translation, it, it gives a really interesting and fun take on it. But I really appreciate what you said earlier, uh, Jackie, because I was imagining myself as a high school English teacher and would I want to teach this translation? And I think that if you just handed this translation and they saw the word bro, they would feel like the text was kind of pandering to them in a way. Yeah. So I think that having like juxtaposing those saying like, look at what this person's doing and this is why, because this cool story used to be done. People used to do this to it would maybe um, help uh, illustrate that. I think it's interesting that you talked about the idea of the canon as a story itself, because I hadn't thought about that before, but I think it's true. I mean, it's the story of what we value over time, like as a literary society or not. And I think that kind of also hits the head on something that at least I've been trying to, I've, I've been struggling with when we've been recording this podcast is like, do we fire something from the canon or not? You know, that's kind of our stick. And then it's like, well, does it, is it based on how much I enjoyed reading it or is it based on how important it is or both? And I think I didn't enjoy the Tolkien translation of Beowulf at all, but it seems to be incredibly important. So it's like, you know, or even with the Odyssey, like we ended up enjoying the Odyssey, but the, you know, a lot of the time actually doing the work of it, I was like, this is not speaking to me, or this is not something that I consider to be of as much importance as it seems to be in culture. But just like with Beowulf, I think with the Odyssey, the translation that you read has such a huge effect. I mean, um, and some of them are just, they're just better and more interesting. And if you're, if you have the eye of a poet, they're definitely more poetic and fun to read than others. I really liked um, the last bit of Headley's introduction. She doesn't say the word canon, but she speaks to the idea. She says, um, it takes new readers, writers, and scholars to find them, people whose experiences, identities, and intellect span the full spectrum of humanity, not just the slice of it. That is, in my opinion, the reason to keep analyzing texts like Beowulf. We might, if we analyzed our own long-standing stories, use them to translate ourselves into a society in which a hero making doesn't require monster killing, border closing, and board clinging, but instead requires a more challenging task, taking responsibility for one another. And it made me appreciate, like, translated works itself being in the canon, because I think they operate in a unique way. Like, when a new translation comes out, it's almost like a software update, like a, a cultural update, a patch that gets to, to take the, the, the work of literature and translate it to a new audience. And so 
and using like hashtag and some of the, the, the contemporary lingo that Headley uses, you relate to it in a different way. Whereas I think sometimes other works in the canon, in the English canon that were actually written in English, they're very fixed. We keep changing, they stay the same, but translations can kind of keep changing with us in this interesting way. Can you talk a little bit about when the canon started to form and um, what causes some books to be in it or not? Well, I think the whole notion of, of the canon in literature is is kind of an ambiguous construct. The, the concept itself comes from like the biblical canon where they actually sat down and decided we're going to make these things the Bible and these things are not going to be the Bible. And like that was the biblical canon. And that's where the whole concept comes from is that incorporating the different books that became the Bible, like that's canonical. And so then that concept of the canon got taken up in different contexts. It was never a, a meeting of the minds like there was with the Bible, where they said, you know what, Beowulf will be in there, Sir Gawain, no. Iliad, yes, Odyssey, no. You know, there was those con- <laughs> that's never happened. Until now. <laughs> with the Fire the Canon podcast. <laughs> it just happens until, you know, when people teach it, when, you know, when teachers teach it at colleges and in high schools, um, that's how the, the canon kind of gets defined through what people are, are reading or say they're reading. Here's my question about the canon. The first people who started talking about it, were they envisioning it as being descriptive or proscriptive? Like, were they saying, we think these works should form the canon? Or were they saying, we think there is a canon already, and we're going to tell you what books are in it? I mean, to me, it seems like because of where the concept of the canon derives from, there is something prescriptive that can't be really divorced to it. Like that prescriptiveness is always kind of in there. It definitely seems to carry that that trace of that meaning when people use it, even if they may be using it more descriptively. It, to me, it carries that baggage of it being prescriptive, um, which is, I think, the reason why I always felt kind of resistant to the concept. Yeah, so now I'm thinking about um, how do we spin our podcast? Because we have not known so far if we are being prescriptive or descriptive. <laughs> and is prescriptivism inherently bad? I think it kind of is. It's always so confusing at the end of the episode when we have to decide if we're going to fire it because we still don't really seem to know what it means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're like, should we fire it? And then it's like, we've gone on this journey. For the most part, we're just reading the books that people get told are important or whatever. And we're saying, if we enjoy it. Well, I like the fact that you took the concept of the canon and made it a weapon because that is how the concept of the canon is sometimes wielded. It's weaponized in the name of particular identities or particular um, value systems. I think this concept of like firing the canon, like who's it being fired at? Um, what is it that's being fired? Who's doing the firing? I, I, I think that it's really great for you to sit with the troubling aspects of the concept of the canon and just like marinate in that problem. And even feel kind of gross, maybe, when you decide to fire something or not to, you know, to just sit with sit with that trouble. I think it's probably good. Thank you. That was a really smart metaphor that we made with the weaponization. <laughs> yeah, that was completely intentional. Yeah. Are there any interesting or good examples of books that left the canon and then came back? Or maybe, like, weren't in the canon and, and then were entered into it? Maybe if there's a good story for why, you know, that'd be good for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so the one, the example I'm thinking of is um, Kate Chopin's The Awakening, which is a, a short ah. novel from the early 20th century. And because she was a woman writer, the text was like completely ignored, but it was, it was rediscovered. Um, someone like literally found it and they were doing research and then found this novel. Uh, and, it, and then they were like, this is amazing. And they started sharing it with people. And then it kind of took on a life of its own. And it kind of, I think it's 
now pretty firmly in the American the canon of American literature. That's an example of something that made its way in in kind of an interesting way. And it was because, and, and it was just a, a legacy of sexism. Did I read that in your class? Yeah, I think so. Hi, this is your producer, Theo, jumping in during the edit. Not a bad conversation we're having, huh? If you like this podcast, please recommend it to your family, friends, co-workers, and any royalty you might know. Another easy thing you can do is give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate that. Now back to the podcast. Okay, so to jump into Beowulf, um, Rachel and I just read the J.R.R. Tolkien translation. It was my first time reading any translation of Beowulf other than just little excerpts from it. Um, And then I listened to the Maria Devana Headley version on um, audiobook today, all in one go. So I remember it quite well. Um, And then Rachel has read it. So, And then Brad, have you read... Both of you, both of these, I assume, and other translations as well. Or when's the last time you read them? Um, I don't know that I've read the whole Tolkien translation, but I have read. The, don't um, bother. In 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 schools for a, for the longest time, the uh, Burton Raphael um, translation was the one most commonly anthologized in textbooks. Uh, he also translated, um, I think. Um, the Iliad and the Odyssey too. He he translated lots of classic classic texts. Mostly, I've read um, the Seamus Haney translation. I did um, read the MBH uh, translation uh, yesterday and loved it. At least for me, I had to read this boring version of Beowulf before I could appreciate MDH because when you just come at me like, bro, Beowulf was such the man. Like he was the man. He was the man. Yeah, I would think. This just sounds like this is going to be a joke. It was funny, um, but also really, really beautiful. Like the alliteration, the poetry was just so much better, in my opinion. Going from Tolkien to this was actually ended up being the best choice because the difference is so immense. Like, like not just if we had done Seamus Haney and then this, they're both in verse. And they're both very good, by the way. The Seamus Haney translation is also very good. I'm hearing that I should have read the Seamus Haney translation. (laughs) (laughs) I just particularly remembered the Beowulf translation because I remember you talked about how cool it was that he started with so for literally probably 10 minutes. (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned that because I want to break out my speech. It is approximately 10 minutes, so I hope you all will indulge me. (laughs) You screen share and put up your PowerPoint and start going. So. (laughs) Yeah, you're embarrassing me, Rachel, because I really thought that was some of my best material was my... No, I, I liked it. I'm not saying it was a problem. I just remember at the time being like, wow, this guy really likes the beginning of this poem, and I thought it was good too. Well, now you've provoked oh, me. No. I just want to say <laughs> that I I, th- I like that for the same reason that I like bro. The so captures the storytelling part of it, and the bro captures the masculinity part of it. And they're, But they're also irreverent. They're very not Tolkien-like, where you're trying to make it seem high poetry. Do you know like, what the first word of the Tolkien version is? No, no, The no, first no. word of the Tolkien version is... Low. Low, so, and bro. That sounds like the name of someone's dissertation. Like, uh, low, so, bro, colon, an exploration. (laughs) (laughs) And now if you want to use that, you have to credit Mr. Robinson and give him some of the royalties. Yeah, people make millions off their dissertations. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you just got to put in a lot of native advertising, a lot of product placement inside your dissertation. Yeah, well, and I was thinking about it when listening to, to MDH today because... Like when we read Tolkien, we couldn't tell over what period of time Grendel was attacking Heorot. We couldn't tell how many times he did it. We couldn't tell a lot of things like, and it was just these very basic, like, okay, was it one night and then they left or did they continue to live there and keep getting slaughtered? This doesn't make sense. But, um, 
Maria Devana Headley made that a lot more clear. And I was like, I don't know why we couldn't figure this out the first time. A lot of the stuff that seems more clear in this translation is not necessarily that if we could speak old English and we read it, it would be clear to us. It's more like she looked at it from a different perspective and put that in the book. I had a couple lines I wanted to read or talk about if that's okay. So this part I thought was really good. I don't think we discussed this in the first episode, but we find out that before Beowulf left, his people looked down on him. Like they thought he was kind of worthless. He was just the king's nephew. He had no status by himself apart from the family connection. So once he returns with like his ship full of gold, everyone kind of reevaluates his status. But the way that MDH wrote it, she said, thus did Beowulf bring his bravery to bear. He battled like a brawler, but could hold court with kings and queens too, never punching down, never mocking drunk comrades, never locking himself in combat with those whose strength couldn't stand. He kept his stones controlled, and when he rolled, he rolled only with equals. Mind, he hadn't had the status when he left. A boy who meant looked on as low, the Gaets thought him lazy, and even their lord had never given him span on the beer bench, believing he was all bluster, no badass, thinking his <laughs> position came from privilege, not class. So that passage, the reason I wanted to read it is because I think it gives you a clear picture of the way that she used like little internal rhymes and in her alliteration. It's good. I Tolkien, I think he really cared a lot more about getting the exact meaning of the word, which I don't care about. <laughs> Brad, was there anything about the, the version that you read yesterday, the newer version that like stood out to you as really surprising or something that you didn't take away from and other versions you've read? Really, it, just in the way she uses bro. I think what it did for me is it helped me appreciate more the performative masculinity of the poem in a way that I don't think I'd appreciate it before. So like in the Seamus Haney translation, he starts it with so. And he did that because he was trying to create this feeling of storytelling that he remembered from his uh, the way his grandfather in, in Ireland would tell stories. He would use so a lot. She talks about this in her introduction. She does a similar thing here. But she just does it with bro because that's the word that she heard her family and her dads using when they would like sit around talking to each other. They would be calling each other bro. It could be like an aggressive thing. Like bro can mean calling someone out, but it could also be like friend. And so it had this like nice ambiguity to it. But however you see it, it, it plays to this performative version of masculinity, which I think is all throughout the, the poem through th these different people being these different kind of men. And, and what does it mean to be a good man um, in this particular society? And I think by using bro, she she pokes at it um, in, a, in a really nice way. Uh, and so I think that was something I really appreciated about her translation. Yeah, I think I heard her say something about that in the introduction, or maybe someone else said it, that it really depends on the tone of voice in which you say bro or dude or something like that to know, like, is this being, you know, said aggressively or not? And I guess this being maybe part of the oral tradition that that kind of comes to life more so I'm actually really glad I listened to it as an audiobook as well mm. one thing I noticed a lot so um Maria Devana Headley this version makes use of a lot of what I would call African-American vernacular English or AVE so I think that's really interesting and cool I also am not sure about you know the motivations behind that right you know this is a whole very like American way of translating certain things and making things accessible. And it's in a way that you would say traditional academics don't really speak, but it's part of it is Ave. And then part of it is just kind of like that bro-y sort of, you know, toxic masculinity frat talk. So I thought it was really interesting how she mashed those up and like, what does that mean for um, the intended audience and how like maybe new segments of the population can access Beowulf in a way that they weren't, you know, it wasn't marketed towards them before. If you look at how frat guys talk, 
they are constantly stealing things. Like they are obsessed with black culture. Like the music that these rich white frat guys listen to and the way that they like to dress sometimes and the slang that they use, that's something they do as well. So it sounds like what you're saying, if if I heard you correctly, you're you're wondering is is the translation through those moves racialized in a way that might be problematic? Is that kind of what you're you're getting at? I guess I don't really feel that it's problematic. I think that if someone said that it were, I would um, listen and consider that valid. My main question is... What was her point? <laughs> yeah, like, is is it being said that way just to, like, make this more accessible and fun and cool? Or is it kind of making fun of the toxic masculinity in a way? It could be to make it more welcoming. It could just be because that's how slang in the U.S. works. Like, everyone steals it from Black people. Or it could be that she's purposely referencing these bro culture. Again, I'm imagining high school students reading this and, and seeing themselves in the text. English teacher sometimes thinks of, of books as either being like, either looking through a window or a mirror or walking through a door. There's like these threshold metaphors for what it means to engage in a work of literature. And so if you think about this one as a mirror, like what is the mirror doing? So, and I can imagine there might be particular readers who might feel mocked. Are they feeling mocked because of the way it's kind of poking fun at masculinity and kind of bro culture? Or might there be a way in which someone who sees that racialized language feels like there's a way on the lower frequencies, it's kind of like making fun of them. So I think that's a great, a really um, insightful observation and attention in the poem that I think is probably important to sit with. Good job, Jackie. Rachel, you don't have to make that face every time. <laughs> I thought it was great. The way that she wrote it, I was better able to get closer to the characters. In Tolkien's translation, I really did not care about Beowulf, and I was 100% on the side of Grendel and his mom and the dragon. But reading this translation, I got choked up a little bit at times because she talks about how she wanted to emphasize the requirements that masculinity put on these guys. They keep wanting to retire, and they can't. Everyone has a violent end. No one's able to just relax and enjoy what they have. They always feel like they have to do it more and more and more. And talking about like dying heroes' deaths. And I just felt bad for Beowulf at the end. I was like, this guy's not so bad after all. And isn't that the point of Rothgar's sermon where he says like, you don't have to just keep grinding forever. You can eventually just enjoy your life, right? But they don't listen. He says, if you do a good job of building up like bonds of love, then people won't always be trying to betray you. Which we hated Hrothgar's sermon in the Tolkien translation, but in this one I was like, you're making some good points. <laughs> well, the motives for um, Beowulf's fights were very different with the dragon and with Grendel. With the Grendel thing, he was deliberately going out and seeking glory. Like, he was trying to make a name. Right. And the dragon, he, was, it was, he, he genuinely did it because he was trying to protect his people. So it seemed like he kind of tried to follow Hrothgar's advice in some ways, but then it came to a point where he had to be the guy to slay the dragon. Although he didn't have to do it by himself. Like, I think that was the problem with him. When he goes to face the dragon, he brings like 12 men with him and he says like, okay guys, don't help me at all. Why did he bring them then? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. And they're all armored and everything, so. Can I say, say something about Can that? Just... Please. Sure. <laughs> so one reading of Beowulf um, that's fairly common is that it was intended to be almost like a, a work of Christian propaganda where some of the Anglo-Saxon style mythologies about warriors was like merged with Christian narratives to kind of appeal to them. Often people will point to that as like a Christ and his disciples kind of thing. Like he's dead and he has the 12 disciples there with him. And so it was a way of like 
showing his self-sacrifice in relation to these men who are now going to go on and tell his story. So I think that that is at least one explanation for why those 12 guys were there and why it was important for him to do it on his own. I understand that from like the propaganda perspective, but just looking at it psychologically, it seems to me that the reason he would do that is because he's saying, I'm like, I'm the king. I'm a man. I have to be just as strong as I always was. And that would be the reason he does it by himself, which I wonder if the the narrator thinks that he did something wrong. Did you come across the concept of war guild in your in your reading? It's an old English word, it means man price. And so when you killed someone in this culture, there was like two ways of dealing with it. It was either had to be avenged by killing the person or you had to exact their man price. If you killed, you know, my brother, I could either exact revenge or you could give me some money instead. And that would be a way of dealing with it. In fact, um, earlier in the poem, they make a reference to this with Grendel, that not only is Grendel killing, he's not paying them for all the people he's killing. This I is, think they said he doesn't have any gold or ring. The old counselors knew better than to expect a settlement in silver from him. And so that's what they're referring to. And so there's an element of shame there that not only are his men um, dying, he can't avenge them, and he also can't get any money for them. So there's just this unresolved death. And when Beowulf kills the dragon, the dragon has been killing his people. And so that gold then that he sees is a way of him bringing closure from that war guild, that man price perspective, that he's made peace with it by killing it, but also getting the gold. I mean, that is kind of one way of trying to make sense with it within the, the values universe of Beowulf. So he was such a worthy man, basically, that nothing other than this mountain of dragon gold could be enough to replace his loss. That was what made me like Grendel's mother so much is that she very clearly could have just slaughtered everyone in the hall, but she just came in, killed one guy as the payment for them killing her son and took the arm and left. She seems much closer to what they would recognize as a person than Grendel did. Grendel, I feel like to them would have seemed more like an animal that he comes in and kills and eats these people and doesn't pay them anything. But the mother just literally, she only got involved because she needed to avenge her son's death, which this translation certainly didn't give any indication that she was going to come back. It seemed like that's all she wanted to do and now she's done. It kind of goes along with this idea of like the female warrior or the like the female threat and the only thing Beowulf ever does with female characters is slay them. Except Hrothgar's wife. <laughs> yeah, he killed Hrothgar's wife. We forgot to mention. <laughs> <laughs> Give me rings, will you? <laughs> one of the queens, I'm forgetting her name now. Maybe one of you can tell me. Her name was Modthrith. She was portrayed as being kind of scary in the fact that if anyone looked at her, you would be like... She had them murdered. That was before she got married, though. Yeah, but then she got married in turn and, and that... That fixed her, yeah. Yes. Oh, so she was tamed. Okay. <laughs> when she was the people's princess, that's when she had everyone murdered. That's how it was phrased. Beowulf probably should have just married the dragon. Yeah. Ooh, that right. would be a good fanfic spin-off. <laughs> you ship him with the dragon. Has that already happened? I need someone to tell me if that's already happened. I'm not that into the Beowulf fanfic community. I don't think I'd be able to tell you. <laughs> when I say someone, I mean the person who knows things. Brad, has that already happened? I, I too have, have not part of the Beowulf fanfiction community. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Jackie. <laughs> Can I ask you all a question? What did you think of um, Grendel's? He had a huge sack hanging from his shoulder, stitched with sinew. Yeah. Clasped with clever workings, crafted of twisted dragon skins. I like that uh, Headley referred to this in the introduction as his doggy bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for taking home all the little pieces, yeah. 
But I remember reading that as a, I remember as a teacher being like, why does he have a bag? Like, what an odd detail to include. Yeah. Like a man bag. Well, you know, early in the, in the thing where he comes the first night at Heorod and takes away 30 people, I don't know why, but me just imagining trying to carry 30 of anything even if they're light, it's like, oh man, you're going to drop a few. So he had to have something. She got stuck on that for like an hour, just trying to picture it. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the bag? Oh, here's the bag. Okay, finally. Well, that's also one of the fun things about reading it is it also, because that makes you imagine too, like what does Grendel look like? Is he humanoid, not humanoid? And mm-hmm. how big is he? The lack of detail of those things forces you to use your imagination in some pretty fun ways, I think, here. Uh, one part I thought was really funny was when the... Um, the Geech show up at the, you know, the guard gate um, of King Hrothgar's land and, or of Denmark, I guess. And the guard in the Tolkien version is like, I've never seen so many people dressed as though for war. What are you guys doing here? But in the MDH version, he says, oh, hell no, you're not coming in here like that. You need to explain yourselves. Like he was very sassy. And I love that. Which it makes sense because that's probably the vibe that the original had going for it. Like when you hear now, if someone said like, oh, that's weird. Why do you all have weapons and armor? We would just say like, oh, you're dumb. You're a dumb man. And you're asking. Yeah. A stupid question, but it probably was yeah. more of a confrontation. Well, can I can I do a can I do a professorial actually Please. here? Um, oh, so actually, when this was when this was written, <laughs> it was it was according to uh, my research here. I I checked. I've been looking at the the Norton anthology of English literature and was reading. Um, he talks about how when it was written, it was deliberately written to make it seem kind of old, mm-hmm. and even when it was written it would have been difficult for even people who are literate then to really read and appreciate, which is an interesting contrast and inversion to what Headley is doing because she's taking it and trying to make it seem fresher by giving it, you know, that line, answer now or bounce, which was one of my favorite parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and so it's doing like the opposite. It's like it, it already feels old and that turns people off, so let's make it newer. Whereas then it was like, no, let's make it seem old and give it this like mysterious and and antiquity feel um, for readers. I've always thought it was peculiar that we think of Beowulf as being this canonical work in English literature. It's like the first thing you read in a British literature class, but it's like written uh, about these Scandinavian people in a language that wasn't even, at the time it wasn't, it wasn't even English. I, I, I read earlier that, I think there's just one reference to the Angles is where we get the Anglo-Saxon. There's, I think the word Angle is used once in the in the entire poem that kind of makes that connection, but otherwise it's like about a completely different place, a completely different um, different people. I thought this was going to take place in England. I was really confused about why they kept mentioning Danes um, and realized that oh, it's just in Denmark. And we were trying to talk about like why do we think that is? Was it for English readers to look at the story about Danes and say, "Wow, what weird people they are"? Or do you think that had something to do with the Christian propaganda aspect to it? Or it could be since it's a fantasy story, it they're able to suspend their disbelief more if it took place somewhere else. They made it more exotic, so it's more believable. It also could have been uh, all of those things, and it could also have been about constructing like a, the the work that a canon does, you know, constructing a cultural identity through narrative and connections to these other people because they did have connections. I mean, some of them did invade at various times. They were all Germanic peoples. Mm-hmm. It seems to create like a cultural lineage or relation to those people in addition to, I think, doing those other things. All right. So how did we feel about it as a whole? How did we like the MDH translation? 
Rachel? I really like this one. I love it. Let's make people read this instead, right, Jackie? Yeah, no, I, I loved it. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, instead or in addition to? like, Because kind of like what you were saying at the very beginning, Jackie. <laughs> Can you just do this one? I think you should have to read like a few pages of a really dry one. Prime the pump with that and then give them this and then people will say, oh, so refreshing. Maybe that's what she should have done. She should have started off with like a really dry translation yeah. <laughs> and you think this is what you're reading. Yeah, like, yeah. This sucks. And then you turn the page it's like... Yeah. JK, here's the actual version. Right. They should put it together as a single volume, like um, a page or two of Tolkien, a page or two of Seamus Haney, a page or two of Burton, and then a, and then the rest of it be like, now watch what Maria Devana Headley does. <laughs> yeah. Jackie, what do you think? Fire? No fire? Fire all the versions except for Headley's. You've only read two. Do you really don't want care. to say that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I say don't fire it. I, I wasn't that into it last time. I really love it now. I think it says a lot of really interesting stuff about masculinity and old age and even just the roles that everyone has to play in their life. I almost cried. I could have. Wait, at what part? Um, at the end, when everyone's talking about how thirsty he stayed. <laughs> I was like, he did stay thirsty. He did ride hard. <laughs> He's my best boy too. The one thing I forgot to say is, did you guys feel, we talked about in the Odyssey, how it really does, to me at least, it seemed like we were reading about an alien culture. Yeah, this wasn't like that. Did you feel that way in the Tolkien one? Do you think it was just the translation or you're just able to get into it a little better? I didn't think in the Tolkien or in the Headley versions that it was quite as alien as the Odyssey. Like even thinking yeah. about the man price, it's like that's still, like obviously it's not something we do now, but it's not that weird. You're like, that makes sense. Yeah, it's like bail. <laughs> I feel like if I was in this Beowulf society, as long as I was a man, I think I could hack it okay. If I lived in ancient Greece, I would just constantly be furious and nothing would make sense to me. <laughs> I think if I were the people's princess, I would be fine because I could just have anyone <laughs> murdered. What do you think, Mr. Robinson? Do you want to fire anything? Uh, I mean, honestly, my thinking is to fire the concept of the canon altogether. Nice. End of podcast. If we're not doing that, and I don't think you should, um, I because I, I will be leaving. You'll be shooting me from the cannon. Is that um, <laughs> I really like Beowulf. I love this translation because I have a relationship with the prior translations. And so I have a relationship to this text that makes me like it. So I would keep it for that reason. But again, like thinking through my English teacher lens, like is this a text that I think it's important for people in their formative adolescent years to read, to understand something about themselves or the world, or if that is how canons are produced, is this the text that we want to use to produce that canon? I think is a, is a different question. So I'm left unsettled on that one. Like maybe there's better texts to read with adolescents than a broy Beowulf, Trumpian Beowulf. I think adults should read it. It's five stars from me. I'm going to recommend that Stephen read it, which I didn't do with the Odyssey. And I think Theo would actually really like it because you're a big monster guy. So, wow. Okay. You didn't have to be like that. <laughs> it's not that big of a monster. No, like a monster hyphen guy. No, I don't know. It wasn't supposed to be a Kenning, but um, yeah, it's got great monsters. I think people should read it if they're interested. Support an author, a female author. <laughs> I just wanted to add right there what you just reminded me of when I used to teach this. I When I had a PlayStation 3, there was a game called Beowulf that I brought in where my students would take turns fighting Grendel um, as like as like <laughs> the boss fight, which was pretty fun. Wow. <laughs> now Thea's interested. So he was the boss fight, not the dragon? Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> surprisingly enough, it didn't correspond to the text very closely. Yeah, because Grendel in actual Beowulf is out like a light instantly. He's not really a big deal. 
I still feel bad for him. Could have been a mini boss fight. I remember that. It actually might have been towards the beginning, actually, because then we didn't have to replay to catch up with it because it wasn't a very good video game, but it was it was fun to do that in, uh, in class. <laughs> this real experience. Okay, well, thanks for coming on. I think if you ever want to come back. <laughs> this was super fun. I really, I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, keep me, keep me, keep me in mind. Yeah, if you have any books that you have, yeah, super strong opinions on one way or the other, and you're like, I just got to get this off my chest to like ten or twelve listeners, <laughs> hit us up. No, no, no. We have like yeah. four hundred listens now, actually. Yeah, so that's true. But if you have, especially if there's a book you hate, please tell us because that could be good. Hmm. Yeah. Well, are you gonna, are you gonna do Iron Man? We might. Uh, we might. We might have to. Yeah. <laughs> to say no. Like, we already know the answer, but... We didn't want to do it first. We were like, okay, we should definitely do Ayn Rand because we're definitely going to hate it. But then yeah. she didn't want to do the first book by a woman get fired. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But um, Jackie, Theo, it was so nice to meet you all. Really nice um, um, chatting with you. Thanks, you too. Good to meet you. This was fun. Thanks, you too. Thanks, All bye. right, bye. All right, that was our first special guest. Huge thanks to Mr. Brad Robinson. To Dr. Dr. Brad Robinson. Brad. He probably would just like you to say Brad Robinson. I don't edit this podcast, so we're stuck with it. <laughs> okay, call him Dr. Brad Robinson then. Well, I already said it. Okay. <laughs> don't forget to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash firethecanon, spelled C-A-N-O-N. There are a variety of rewards tiers, and you can get access to exclusive content. Uh, we just put up our first Patreon exclusive episode where we watched the Odyssey episode of Wishbone and do some commentary on it. I think it's our funniest episode. So if you want to hear it, uh, become a patron on our Patreon. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating, a review, subscribe, tell your friends and family about it. Maybe we'll be able to get some more guests on in the future. If you didn't enjoy this episode, please leave us alone. Just, <laughs> just let us <laughs> no, if you didn't enjoy this episode, just come back next week. We'll be doing a different book. Oh, yeah, that's fine too. Do that. <laughs>